One of the most emotionally moving places in all of Israel is the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem. It is the Protestant world's traditional site for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Stay tuned for a visit. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. For nine weeks now, I have been taking you on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. We have covered many biblical sites like Capernaum, Chorazin, Nazareth, Megiddo, and Jerusalem. We have also taken a look at other sites like Independence Hall in Tel Aviv, the Roman capital of Caesarea Maritime, the Crusader capital of Akko, the city of Tiberias, Herod's fortress of Masada, and the Mount Herzl Cemetery. In this program, we're going to visit the most important and spiritually meaningful site in all the land of Israel. It is the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem. I pray our visit will be spiritually enriching to you. Part of the Garden Tomb complex is Skull Hill, which could very well mark the site of the crucifixion. Today, it overlooks an Arab bus station. The tomb itself, which dates back to the first century, is adjacent to Skull Hill, just as described in the Gospels. The tomb is located in a beautiful garden, again, just as described in the Gospels. The guides never claim that it's the actual burial place. The point they make is that it meets all the scriptural conditions, and whether or not it is the actual site, we can be assured that wherever the tomb may be, it is empty. Jesus, my Lord. 
dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ rose. Hebrews chapter 1. I was reading through the New Testament many years ago. I got to Hebrews chapter 1 and I was looking forward to it because this is one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. It talks about the superiority of Jesus above the angels and Moses and everything else. And I love how it ends in verse 14 where it says that there are ministering angels who are ministering to those who are in the process of being saved. And I have depended on those angels many times. I ask the Lord to post one at my house every time I leave on a trip like this to watch over my family. I ask them to surround that airplane when we're flying over that big ocean. So if you've never used the ministry of angels, I suggest you start doing so. But I got the first one, which is not a full sentence. And look at what it says. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. And I started to go to verse 2, and the Holy Spirit said, stop. Now, I don't know if you've ever had those experiences. I'm sure you have if you read the Scriptures often. It's called a rhema. A rhema is where the Holy Spirit speaks to you from the Scripture to give you a special message. You might read a verse 101 times, and it never say anything to you. But the 102nd time, it'll jump off the page, grab you by the throat, shake you till your teeth rattle, because you have a need in your life that never was there before that that Scripture's going to speak to. And that's what happened that day. I said, well, Lord, that's not even a full sentence. Read it again. So I read it again. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So I got to thinking about that. And I thought, well, I'll go over to the Old Testament and I'll take a look and I'll see what are the various ways that God spoke through the prophets. And it didn't take me long to make a list of them, and I'm sure you could too. The very first thing that, that I thought of was the most obvious, the writing prophets. The Old Testament is full of writing prophets. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the Hosea, Joel, Amos, the major prophets, the minor prophets. David in the Psalms many times spoke prophetically, uh, full of prophecy, even prophecies in the, in the histories uh, that we have. So I, I, I began to think about, the, about the, uh, the, the writing prophets, and then I began to think it says various ways and, and various people. And I got to thinking about the great variety of people, from a king like David to a sophisticated, erudite, uh, uh, educated man like Isaiah, uh, to a man like Amos who was a fig picker from Tekoa, uh, all, uh, uh, Brave men like Daniel, cowards like Jonah. There were all kinds of people that he used. Uh, it, it depended upon whether their heart was searching for him or not, whether he could use them. And then I got to thinking, well, what, what was there besides the writing prophets? And it occurred to me the Bible is full of oral prophets. 
These were prophets who never wrote anything. People wrote about them. Oral prophets like Elijah and Elisha. They didn't write anything, but people wrote about them. Or uh, the, the Old Testament's full of oral prophets. I went through one time making a list of the old oral prophets. I was just overwhelmed. Many of them are not even named. They'll be referred to as the old prophet, the young prophet, uh, something like that. Uh, one of my favorites is Micaiah, a prophet many have, have not usually heard of. But there was a time when Ahab and Jehoshaphat, who an ungodly king and godly king, were going to go out to battle together against the common enemy. And Jehoshaphat said, hey, before I go into battle, I always have the prophets come and, and, and tell us whether we should go or not. And Ahab said, ah, you know, the prophets, I don't care anything about the prophets. He said, I've got 400 of them and all they ever do is come and tell me what, they, what I want to hear. He said, there's only one who will tell me what I don't want to hear and I don't like him. <laughs> Jehoshaphat said, okay, let's get him. And he was Micaiah. And Micaiah came in and he said, and, and he, he revealed something that was very amazing. He said, I saw the Lord in his throne room. Very few people were ever given that opportunity. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Micaiah saw the heart. And he said, and I say to you, if you go to battle tomorrow, you're going to be defeated. And Ahab turned to Jehoshaphat and said, see, I told you, he always tells me things I don't want to hear. Well, they, you've got the writing prophets. You've got the oral prophets. And in fact, in the New Testament, you have oral prophets. Uh, Philip had four daughters who were prophets. Uh, Agabus confronted, confronted Paul at the end of his third missionary journey and wrapped a rope around him and said, don't go to Jerusalem. If you do, you'll end up in bondage. And he said, I'm going anyway. And the greatest prophet who ever lived. Of course, John the Baptist was an oral prophet. And the greatest prophet who ever lived, Jesus himself, was an oral prophet, except till you get to the end of the Bible, when he dictates seven letters to seven churches. And then he wrote, actually wrote the scripture. So you've got the writing prophets, you've got the oral prophets. And then I got to thinking, well, there's another category. And this is one of my favorites. Sometimes God would speak to the writing prophets and the oral prophets and he'd say, stop speaking, stop writing, and start acting. He wanted to get people's attention and he knew that one way to get their attention was to have them start acting. So he spoke to Isaiah one day and said, Isaiah, nobody's paying attention to you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go barefoot and naked for three years. Isaiah was the first streaker. You know, you're, you're, you're standing there and you're talking and all of a sudden Isaiah comes by. And people said to Isaiah, what, what is this? And Isaiah said, well, uh, uh, this is a message from the Lord. And the message is, if you do not repent, we've been calling you to repentance. If you do not repent, the whole nation is going to be stripped barefoot and naked. The one who was one of the greatest actors was Ezekiel. God had him. In fact, I don't know if you ever noticed this or not, but when God called him to be a prophet, God struck him dumb and he could not speak. So until Jerusalem fell, he was a prophet who's, who, who prophesied by acting. God told him, said, um, go out and get a sand pile. I want you to plant a sand pile. And he said, I want you to take the sand and I want you to make a little wall of sand. And then I want you to take twigs of a tree and I want you to put little twigs, twigs all around this wall. And when people come and say, what in the world are you doing playing in a sand pile? You write on a tablet and you say to them, this wall represents the wall around Jerusalem. The twigs represent siege machines. If you don't repent, God is going to send armies and they're going to come to this place and they're going to destroy it. But it, it, it was amazing what God asked him to do. On another occasion, God said, here's, here's what I want you to do. I couldn't have done this. He, he evidently had a lot of hair. He said, I want you to go to the city square today. I want you to cut off all your hair. Put it on the ground in a big pile. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to take one-third of it, and I want you to throw it up in the air. Let it blow over the aisle. I want you to take one-third of it, 
and I want you to burn it. And now take the last third, throw it up in the air, and take a sword and chop at it. I'm sure by then they call the guys in the funny, from the funny farm to come get this crazy man. And when they asked him what that meant, he wrote down, he said, here's what it means. If you do not repent, this city is going to fall. One-third of you will be destroyed by the fire. One-third of you will be destroyed by the sword. And one-third of you will be taken over the wall into captivity. He did that over and over. On one occasion, the Lord spoke to him and said, tomorrow morning you're going to find your wife dead. And when she's dead, I just want you to leave her there. I don't want you to prepare a body for burial. I want you to walk off, go into the city, and start doing your prophetic thing. And when people come to you and say, your wife is dead. We found her dead. Why are you out here doing this? Why aren't you attending to her? I want you to write on a tablet, and I want you to tell people this, that if they do not repent, this city is going to fall. And when it falls, it will fall so quickly and so decisively that the living will not be able to take care of the dead. That's just a few of the things he was asked to act out. Jeremiah was told on one occasion, take an ox yoke, put it on your shoulders, and walk around with that thing on your shoulders. And when they ask you what that's all about, say, it is the will of God for you to surrender and go into captivity. (laughs) That made him real popular. He was called a traitor, thrown into a pit, and almost murdered because they didn't want to hear the message of the God. I think the greatest actor, the one who's going to get the Oscar when all of the awards are handed out is going to be Hosea. Hosea, who was asked to marry a, a prostitute. And he did. He said, you know, here, here was the holiest man in all the land. And God said, go marry a prostitute. He said, well, Lord, he said, do it. And he did it. She must have been very beautiful. One person said she must have been very beautiful because <laughs> he certainly wasn't attracted to her by her name. Her name was Gomer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so he married her. And God said, now go preach the message. Preach the message of this marriage. So he went out and he preached all over the land. God you, are, you, you Jews are full of, of pride and arrogance. You think that God called you as His chosen people because you're better than anybody else. Let me tell you something. You're no better than anybody else in all this world. When God called you, you were like a, a child that had been born and thrown on the side of the road and was lying there in its blood and nobody wanted it. I didn't select you for your beauty. I didn't select you for your intelligence. I didn't select you for any of that. I selected you out of my grace. And you need to put that arrogance aside, and you need to repent. And that wasn't a popular message. He was t- severely tr- uh, mistreated. He comes back home. And when he comes home, he can't believe. He cannot believe what's happened. He comes back home, and he finds that while he's out preaching his heart out and being persecuted, that this wife to whom he had given his good name, his, his, his wealth, everything he had, that this wife had suddenly succumbed to her old passions. And she was actually back out on the auction block in the center of town, auctioning herself off to the highest bidder. He was crushed. He cried out to God, God, how could you allow this to happen for my wife to return into prostitution? And God said, go preach the message. And the message was, I gave you my good name. I gave you blessing after blessing after blessing. And what did you do? And these are the actual words. You spread your legs to the first person who came along. You are a harlot nation. You are a prostitute nation. You are to repent. You are just like Hosea's wife. So Hosea preached that message. And again, 
Nobody liked it. He came back home, and when he had preached his heart out, he got back home, and as he walked up to his door, he looked next door, and next door, his next door neighbor was on the front porch with a golden idol, and he was worshiping and kissing the idol, and Hosea cries out, Oh, my God, men kiss calves. And I think if he were in our nation today, and he went all over America today, and he were to get up and preach, He'd say, oh my God, men kiss calves. They kiss power. They kiss CDs in the bank. They kiss uh, uh, fame and fortune. And he says, kiss the son. Put it all aside and fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hosea is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He went down to that auction block. And in front of the entire city, he paid the price to buy her out of harlotry. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine him stepping up and everybody mocking him and laughing at him and he begins to bid and they raise a bid and he bids and he bids till he's paid everything he has to buy her out of harlotry. She didn't deserve it. It was grace. The whole story of Hosea is what grace is all about. But by the grace of God, he just bought her out of harlotry and, 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 and the story ends there. It doesn't tell us anything else, but it doesn't have to, because I'll guarantee you one thing. For the day that woman died, she was faithful to him because she could not conceive of such grace that he would forgive her and forget it and buy her out of harlotry. So you've got the writing prophets. You've got the oral prophets. You've got the acting prophets. And then my favorite form of prophecy is symbolic prophecy. The Bible is full of it. You will never love to read the Old Testament until you understand that if you know how to read it, you can find Jesus on almost every page because there's so many symbols of Jesus in the Old Testament. There are symbols in events. Every feast in the Jewish calendar is something that points to an agricultural event, to something in the past, the giving of the law, and to something in the future that will be fulfilled by the Messiah. Every event there is prophetic in nature. And then you have People, the Old Testament is full of people who are prophetic in nature, symbolic prophecies. Uh, take Joseph, for example. Joseph, probably the greatest of all of the symbolic prophecies in the Old Testament. Joseph delivered a message from God to his uh, to kinsmen, just as Jesus came to deliver a message of God to the Jewish people. What did his kinsmen do? They rejected him. The Jews rejected Jesus. What else did they do to Joseph? They took him and put him into a pit and left him for dead. They tried to kill him. What did the Jewish people do? They killed Jesus, along with the Gentiles and others, but they killed him. And then what happened to Joseph? Along came a caravan that pulled him out in a symbolic resurrection, just as Jesus was really resurrected. Then what happened? Joseph went into a far country, just as Jesus went into a far country. He's gone to heaven. And then what happened? Joseph took a Gentile bride, and Jesus is taking a Gentile bride right now. And when he has finished it with that Gentile bride, he will take the next step that Joseph did, Joseph revealed himself to his brethren, and his brethren accepted him. And Jesus will reveal himself to his brethren, and the Jews will look upon him whom they pierced, and they'll weep and well and mourn, and they will receive him as their Hamashiach, as their Messiah. All through the Old Testament, you have these prophetic types. Take David, for example. When David was coronated the king, I mean, not coronated, but was anointed to be the king of all of Israel, Saul was still king. David became a king in waiting. Jesus is a king in waiting right now. Jesus came as our Savior. Right now he's our high priest before God. When he returns, he will be our king. But he's the anointed king, waiting as David waited to come back and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. 
Even inanimate objects are prophetic symbols. One of the most powerful is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was made out of wood, which was a symbol that the Messiah would be human. It was overlaid with gold, which was a symbol that the Messiah would be divine. It had three objects in it. One of those objects was the the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. And that was a symbol that the Messiah would perfectly fulfill the law. There was a pot of manna, a symbol that the Messiah would be the bread of life. There was the rod of Aaron that budded, which was a symbol that the Messiah would be resurrected from the dead. And over it was what was called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest went in and sprinkled the blood on there to indicate that one day the Messiah would spill his blood to make it possible for the grace of God and mercy of God to cover the law of God and make it possible for us to be reconciled. And on there were two cherubim, one at each end with their wings spread over the mercy seat, their wingtips touching, and that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled in the temple. And when you understand those things, it, it just brings it alive in a way that it never has before. And it also helps you to understand some things in the New Testament that don't seem to be all that important. Let me show you. Turn over to John chapter 20 to the passage that we just read. And let me show you something very simple there that has profound meaning. John chapter 20. We read this passage a few moments ago. Verse 11 and 12. Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Seems like a simple historical statement. Mary sticks her head in the tomb, looks over to the burial chamber, and sees where the body of Jesus had been lying. And there's an angel at each end. But you see, if you understand symbolic prophecy, you understand that what Mary really saw when she looked into the tomb, she saw the mercy seat where the blood had been spilled, with a cherubim at each end, an angel at each end. This was a symbol that the whole meaning of the Ark of the Covenant had been fulfilled in the life and death and burial of Jesus Christ. I believe that's the reason that we're told something very interesting in Jeremiah chapter 3. Look at verse 16. Jeremiah 3 verse 16. It's speaking of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Then it shall come to pass... When you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, this is the millennium, says the Lord, that they will no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit, nor shall it be made anymore. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh, and all the nations shall be gathered to it in the name of Yahweh. To Jerusalem, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. When the millennial temple is built... There will be no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It will be empty. It will not be needed because Jesus will be there and He is the absolute fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant as our Lord and Savior. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. If you tuned in late, let me explain that you have been watching a sermon that I delivered at the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem on the last day of a pilgrimage that our ministry hosted. 
Incidentally, if you have missed any of the nine programs we have previously broadcast in this series about a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, you can find them on our website at lambline.com or you can find them archived and available on request at several other internet sites including hischannel.com, lightsource.com, youtube.com, and godtube.com. And if you are interested in going with us on one of our future pilgrimages, just contact us by phone or through our website and we will put you on a mailing list to receive a brochure for our next trip. In that regard, I'd like to share with you a couple of testimonies about our pilgrimages. Well, we were sitting in church one Sunday, the four of us, Lori and I and my sister and my husband, and we said, oh, we want to go to Israel. I said, let's go. Well, there were a lot of tours that we could have taken, a lot of different tours we could have picked from, and I am just so glad that we picked Dr. Reagan's tour because it was, there are no words to describe this tour. It was a teaching tour. It was spiritual. Dr. Reagan's heart is in it, and my heart will never be the same. No. I can't imagine a better tour. I can't imagine um, anyone with a heart like his, and it was obvious because he wanted to share that so much with us that it was the most rigorous trip. And I think that um, he left no stone unturned. I think we saw just absolutely everything. And... um, left me with just a hunger to come back here again someday. Me too. And another thing, he did more than the tour. At night when the day was over, he would take us out and we'd go down to Ben Yadahuda Street, I can't pronounce it, uh, to see the sights and have ice cream and have a cup of coffee and just talk. And, And he was always teaching always teaching even when he was walking or sitting he never stopped teaching and so I don't know of another tour that could even hold a candle to this one and we would do it again but we're going to have to rest for a while (laughs) it's hard to even say this now because I know that I'm still processing this wasn't just a vacation and this was an experience that will that I know has changed me forever me too Well, that's our program for this week. I hope it has been a blessing to you, and I hope you'll be back with us next week for our final program in this series, when we will be at the Church of the Ark of the Covenant located on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Until then, the Lord willing, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Ten of Dr. Reagan's sermons delivered in Israel have been put together in one DVD album titled Sermons from the Holy Land. Some of the sermons included in this album are The Miracle of Israel, delivered at Independence Hall in Tel Aviv. The Evil of Replacement Theology, delivered at the Crusader Castle in Echo. The Healing Ministry of Jesus, delivered at the Galilee Village of Chorazin. The Virgin Birth, delivered at the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, and much, much more. These ten sermons are included on two DVD discs in this album. The total running time for all the sermons is two hours and 35 minutes. This inspirational album could be yours for a donation of $25 or more, plus the cost of shipping. To order, call the number you see on the screen, or place your order through our website at lamblion.com. Christ in Prophecy is made possible through the faithful and generous support of viewers like you. Please consider making a donation to Lamb and Lion Ministries so that we can continue broadcasting the message of Jesus' soon return. Thank you and God bless you.
Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 